1: Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Deborah Grassman. Deborah's a nurse practitioner who provided hospice care at the VA for 30 years. She took care of more than 10,000 dying veterans. Those 10,000 dying veterans taught her lessons about how to attain personal peace, and ironically, those lessons came from people who were trained for war. Deborah came to realize that these lessons could be extrapolated to the general public. And that's when she and four other hospice nurses left the VA and founded the nonprofit Opus Peace, an organization that provides training and tools to people like all of us to take the soul injury message to their families, workplaces, communities, civic organizations, and faith communities. Today, we'll be talking about some compelling lessons that dying veterans have to teach us about the phenomenon she calls or they call soul injury and the unmourned loss and unforgiven guilt and shame that cause it. She's a contributing author for three textbooks, has 22 published articles There are three documentary films featuring her work, and she has two published books, Peace at Last, Stories of Hope and Healing for Veterans, and The Hero Within, Redeeming the Destiny We Were Born to Fulfill. Welcome, Deborah.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Cheryl. I appreciate the invitation to be with you this day
1: very happy to have you and I appreciate the phrase soul injury to be differentiated mm. from from other things that happen after we go through trauma and we'll get into that a little bit later but um, let's start with you know 30 years of hospice with um, members of the military because um, that I would I would imagine and you can tell me if you agree is um, a a population likely to be traumatized in various ways, and also likely, maybe, to have more than even some of the rest of us to to have not mourned those losses. Would you say that was true mm-hmm. in your experience?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, some of the ways they've been traumatized, I think, are are pretty obvious when you're being when you're training for war and or when you go to war the dangerous duty assignments that they experience certainly yield a lot of lot of trauma. Mm. But sometimes the things that we don't talk about as much, which lead to the unmourned loss that you just spoke of, is the stoic military culture that I think most of us can appreciate that soldiers are not encouraged to grieve. They're not encouraged to have really any emotions. They're encouraged to be stoic. And therefore, that doesn't bode well for connecting with their interior self and their real self, their authentic self that uh, I heard the announcers speak about as you were, as he was introducing your program. So yes, stoicism uh, contributes to unmourned grief. And I guess I would say, um,
1: given some things I've You know, heard by the way, Um, that can certainly apply to people that never go to to battle. Um, For instance, I heard a um, a piece on the radio recently about um, soldiers who uh, remotely operate um, guns and airplanes and bombs and that sort of thing. They they are not in the location, and then at the end of the day, they go home to their families and they're having a lot mm-hmm. of mental health problems even though it's sure. they're not they're not s- directly seeing
2: death they know that they're involved well, to in do it do that to do that type of activity and to go home to your family and act like nor- everything's normal it was all in a day's work so to speak requires that you really be able to compartmentalize the you know whatever it was that you're being asked to not feel about, so to speak. So it's that compartmentalization, that separation um, that from within your own self that's required to do in order to do that job, those kinds of jobs, that often causes what, what we have come to call uh, a soul injury.
1: It might be a good time for the listeners to just hear the definition, which I have here. uh A soul injury is a penetrating wound within our deepest self that pierces the defensives of our ego. It disrupts our fundamental identity, shrinking our senses of inner goodness. It can even fuel a haunting sense that we are defective. A soul injury often perpetuates a profound aching caused by disconnection from the part of the self that is carrying the pain, creating a sense of meaninglessness. Um, that that was a very uh, moving description of something I think actually affects a huge number of
2: people, at
1: least in our culture.
2: Well, I think you're very right. I think if we can uh, look at it as a spectrum, and it can range widely. So for most people, I believe, there have been times in their lives where they have gotten separated from their own sense of self. They feel rather lost, uh, are no longer connected with their sense of self, and moving on along the spectrum, uh, if they start wanting to be someone else, wishing they could be like someone else, and then even moving further, wanting to, are thinking, believing even, that they are defective, there's something wrong with them. So, when I think of soul injury, the first thing that I want people to think about is that it is something that has to do with identity, with self-identity, and being disconnected from who we were meant to be. That's essentially it. And then if we think about, well, how do you get disconnected from who you were meant to be? Mm -hmm. I believe... What we have seen from these 10,000 veterans, and which brings us to the conclusion that it is unmourned loss and unforgiven guilt and shame, you can probably appreciate that at the end of life, for all of us, veterans or non-veterans, that what surfaces for most people is what we call a life review. People just sort of automatically start looking back on their lives. Making sense of their lives. And you can appreciate, even if you don't work in hospice, that regrets often surface. And what we in hospice would often do is help people mourn the losses that they had experienced that's focused on those regrets. We would help them forgive themselves and forgive others for the things they should or should not have done. And often what we would see then is this liberating shift that would occur. I mean, people oftentimes, when they're able to mourn, when they're able to uh, forgive themselves and others, they would feel you could palpably see uh, a lifting. And sometimes, sadly, people would say to us, oh, my gosh, why did I have to be dying in order to learn how to do this? Why didn't I learn how to do this decades ago? <laughs> and truly, yes. that was the impetus for us starting Opus Peak, the, the nonprofit, was to not wait until the end when it tends to happen much more naturally. It surfaces as kind of a natural process at the end as people are making meaning of their life. Um. These things sort of surface automatically, but why right. do we have to be wait? <laughs> why do we have to wait?
1: Right. It it intersects in a way with. Um, uh, I I spent a lot of time with Stephen and Andrea Levine, and uh, Stephen wrote a mm-hmm. book called um, "A Year to Live," and it was mm. not for dying. It was not for dying people. Um, it mm-hmm. was a book to help people who are not currently dying. Kind of embrace the experience of of that process that you're talking about, coming to terms with their lives, cleaning up messes, forgiving uh, ourselves and others. You know, um, uh, there there well, were groups that started it, to do that. It seems very much an intersecting idea to to take these things on uh, sooner and have the benefit of them for longer.
2: Well, if you think about how. Most of us take our lives for granted. So, the day before you are given a terminal diagnosis, you pretty much take your life for granted and you think you're going to live forever, essentially. You may, uh, even if you think you're going to die someday, which all of us do think, we feel and we act as if we're going to live forever. So, the day before you're given a terminal diagnosis, <laughs> We all pretty much take our life for granted, at least most of us do, including myself. And the day after you're given a terminal diagnosis, you wake up. And the things that you thought were so important suddenly pale in importance. And the things that weren't even on your radar screen hardly uh, suddenly become very important and urgent even to complete. So that's the gift that death is. It awakens us to how our life matters. And did so you find when you work being in hospice when you work in hospice? The that's just what I was going to ask you. <laughs> uh, 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 well, of course, everybody <laughs> says. Uh, you know, if you work in hospice and you tell somebody where you ask any hospice worker. And um, uh, and they will tell you that hardly a week goes by that you don't tell someone you work in hospice, and what they say to you is, "Oh, isn't that depressing? Oh, you have to be <laughs> so special to do what you do. Oh, how do you do that work?" And you know what what they don't realize again, is that when you can remove the fear of death, when you can open up to it, it truly awakens you to what's important, what's not important. It awakens you to uh, to your own to, to connecting with your deepest desires. It connects you with how you were created to be. So again, that's and we get to see that. I mean, I always said, yeah, you know, I worked uh, an inpatient. You know, I worked in the VA. I worked in an inpatient unit, hospice unit, not a uh, home hospice like. Um, some of the more traditional settings are. And I always said, if you want to see living, come to an inpatient hospice unit because you will see people and families in, on a quest for interior wholeness. And one of the things I always say too is that dying people are fertile ground for healing. Yes. Because yes. when you're given that diagnosis, when you're moved on to a hospice unit, those types of things that make you wake up, you suddenly, um, or at least more urgently, if not suddenly, start being willing to what I call tell the unvarnished truth. I remember I had a patient; he had used alcohol much of his life to as his as a numbing agent for feelings he didn't uh, want to experience, and so that had caused a lot of estrangement in his family. But once he was diagnosed, he sobered up and his family was reunited. And by the time they came to me on the inpatient hospice unit, they, you know, it it was just filled with uh, reunion in a lot of ways. It was Mm -hmm. filled with, I'm sorry, uh, forgive me, you know, uh, all these types of things. And I commented on the courage it had taken for this man, number one, to give up his favorite numbing agent. That's not easy to do.
1: No, especially at the most um, most painful time.
2: Exactly, exactly. Especially (laughs) when you're most vulnerable, and here you're going to do that. And then secondly, I commented on his humility in being able to apologize to his family for how his drinking had impacted them. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, well you know, now while I'm dying is no time for me to be lying to myself. <laughs> that's catchy. Yeah, and I laughed. <laughs> I did exactly what you just did. I laughed. And I said you I said that's a great way to put it. It's just a great way to put it. And you know, I know for many uh, many times people have tried to uh, recruit me to work in psychiatry and I because my uh, master's degree is in is in psychiatry. And so I said, I always said, oh, no, I am way too spoiled. I am way too impatient because in hospice, you know, dying people, as I said, are fertile ground for healing. And they are motivated to change in ways that the rest of us who aren't actively dying <laughs> are willing to do. I see changes happen quickly. And so there's... Uh, there's uh, Satisfaction and instant gratification, not instant gratification, I'm not going to say that, but quick gratification in some ways, relatively speaking. Uh, because Deborah, I so
1: know what you're talking about because it's the same <laughs> as true in, in intense loss and grief. You know, I work yes. a lot with uh, okay. ill people and grieving people, and there can be that same yes. thing of, oh, why did I even ever worry about that? Let's get to work. Exactly. Uh, Yes. Yes. So, I, yes it's so familiar true. to me yes, as well. You're exactly right. And yes, and not what people exact. would expect who haven't had that experience. You know, it's it's thought sure. of these terribly hard periods of life are thought of as things. You know, the worst thing you can imagine, which there there are very painful parts certainly, but this growth edge oh, part, yes. people don't uh, uh, don't factor in uh, sometimes.
2: Well, I think- what we at Opus Peace try to focus on, because there's lots and lots and lots of books and literature on, on grief. And so we've really focused not so much on the grief and loss, uh, because that is already there. What we have really focused on is the fear of loss. And not much is really talked about the fear of loss. Mm -hmm. So that's really what our programs focus on because another fundamental principle that you can appreciate that emerges, sort of poignantly I would say, um, is at the end of life people sort of realize that they really already had everything they needed to be who they really were. It's just they chose other you know, paths or directions, chose to ignore that intuition, chose to ignore someone else's voice rather than their own. So what gets in the way? It's fear. So I think of life, so if we can go with the assumption that we are all, we we come into this world with everything that we need in order to be who we really are, to be who we were designed to be, meant to be, however you want to conceptualize that. And then what gets in the way? Well, fear gets in the way for a lot of different reasons and, and well-founded reasons. And so, you know, when we talk about healing, it's more about removing those barriers that keep us from being who we really are. It's not about <laughs> trying to be stronger and trying to be more resilient and trying to put more stuff in there. It's not about that. It, that's already in there. That's a quality of who we really are. It's that's, more that's, that's a yeah. of being, of being. Of just, uh, I would call it beingness or uh, the quality of our personhood. But it's more a matter of once we can stop being afraid, once we can accept the full spectrum of life, which includes loss and grief. I mean, life is about happiness and abundance and, you know, joy and all those things. And it's also about loss and grief and disappointment and failure. It's about both. But in our culture, we only want to live on the one end. We only want to be on achieving, yes. Succeeding, yes. succeeding, gaining, yes. controlling. And when we do that, I mean and it sounds good. I mean, who I'm going to ha- I'm
1: going to have to break in because we have to take a break. Okay. Um, but uh, I I love what you're talking about. Um, let's come back to it in just a couple of minutes. And listeners, okay. you'll find links to my website and social media at the good grief page of Voice America to find Deborah, You can find her work at opuspeace.org and we'll be back soon.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7.
3: Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show, every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness.
4: What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet?
0: Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There
3: is a difference in health and wellness programs. There can be mainstream programs, and then there is something extra. That something extra is called tips to keep you healthy, happy, and motivated. With your host, Kristen Harper.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Deborah Grassman, one of the founders of Opus Peace, an organization that supports healing of soul injury. And the, before the break, Deborah, um, we were talking about uh, kind of the goal of of accepting and learning to live out your who you truly are inside Um Positive, negative, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole thing, and what um, it sounds like you do a lot of is to um, witness people and guide people through removing the obstacles to that. And I wonder if you could just keep talking about that a little longer, since we had to take a break.
2: Sure. Well, I, I was saying that we have a, a prayer in Opus. And one of the three lines of that prayer includes, "Release me from my fears of who I am and who I am not." So again, going back to the idea that we already have within us all that we need to be who we are, then what keeps us is from doing that is fears. So. Though so every time there's a loss, a disappointment, a failure, those are losses. We often don't think of failures and disappointments as losses, but they are. Absolutely. It's a loss of our expectation. It's a loss of what we wanted. It's a loss of the future that we thought we were going to have, whatever. Even just an interruption, just something silly that we might think is silly, like an interruption which interrupts, it's a loss of what we had hoped to have in this moment or the next moment, so to speak. So, to me, the secret for living in the now, in the present moment, is being able to grieve. That's what allows us to let go of what was, so we can open up to what is. So, And if we can't do that, if we stay stuck in, this is how it was supposed to be, this is how it should have been, then we are failing to, number one, acknowledge, or maybe we're acknowledging the loss, but we're not truly validating it and releasing it. So when you talk about the work that we do, we have have lots of different ways we do the work, but... But one thing that we do is we have a four-day institute where we train leaders in the soul injury concepts, and we train them to go forth into their community, their workplace, their faith place, wherever they might want their civic organization, and speak about soul injury, what it is, what it isn't, just raising the awareness. And then the other thing that we do with them is we, we... take them through a process, and it's very simple, it's very straightforward, um, of being able to identify their fears, being able to re- release, recognize the losses they have sustained, learn how to acknowledge, validate, and release that loss, and then we do the same thing with guilt and shame. Um, very similarly similar process of looking at you know the shame there's some fear driving that shame that makes people fear who they are or fear who they are not and wish they were instead, and being able to identify that be able to uh, have some very straightforward tools simple tools where they can release that bring it to consciousness so they don't have to cover it up into unconsciousness where it gets exiled and that part of self holding the shame, so fearful of who they are, who they are not, gets exiled into unconsciousness. So it's learning how to meet that part of self and um, and accept that part of self, so to speak, and release the shame. And these are very simple things. This isn't a lot of psycho uh, babble, mumbo-jumbo, lots of different processes. Thanks. Which wouldn't, wor- so anyways, wouldn't have
1: worked with that, that population you originally worked with, I wouldn't think. It, it, it's it exactly doesn't work with most did. people, but
2: especially that, well, uh, I wouldn't. Worked, you know, but this is the process that we did with, this is the process that emerges at end of life automatically. So, you know, these veterans, you know, the regrets, when we would focus on their regrets, And again, they'd be saying things like, I can't believe I did such and such. I didn't need to do that. I can't believe I wanted to do this and that when, in fact, I was, you know, I should have followed my instincts and done X, Y, or Z, you know, whatever it might be. Right, right. Again, those things surface very easily, oftentimes become uncovered, I guess I would put it. In a very natural way, almost automatically, at the end of life, uh, there was so something really that taking-
1: that I that I came across in in you know investigating what you do, uh, which I like quite a bit. You you said uh, the the idea is to reown pain and rehome the part of the self that carries it. I like that re-own, yeah. most particularly because. Um, uh there's a sort of sense we need to mother or parent our pain. You know, it's par- it's it's yes. ours. <laughs> we have that's to it exactly we, that's it exactly. We have to own it. it. It's it ours. It that's belongs right. to us. It needs our care. <laughs> I it like that way care. of putting it. It needs <laughs> it's our it's waiting
2: care. for yes. us. <laughs> um well you know that term re own we use for really about three different reasons. First of all, it implies that this part of ourself that's holding the pain isn't a foreigner, isn't a stranger, isn't, has never not been known to us. It's already a part of us. It's just, you know, and on some level, maybe an unconscious level, but on some level, we, we recognize that it's a part of us. But for whatever reason, we've separated ourselves from that. So, so the idea of re-owning instead of just owning But that to real means that on some level, you already know it's there. (laughs) You may be (laughs) fooling yourself, but you already know. So there, there in fact, uh, is that. And then the other thing is, you know, we often will talk about grief, let's say, sadness, sorrow, these emotions, as if there's not a part of self that is experiencing that. So, it also, So we're not only talking about reowning, let's say, emotional pain, but we're talking about reowning the part of self that is holding that emotional pain, that part of self that we have numbed out, are compartmentalized, are exiled into unconsciousness. So it also, um, the term reowning implies, you know, there's a part of self that is you. That is a part of you. It's not mm. just a fleeting emotion. The emotion is there, and it has energy. But there's a part of you that that is holding it. So it's not just, uh, you know, uh, an an emotion that comes and goes. Uh, although emotions do come and go, but there's a reason why that emotion is there, and that reason is right. because there is a part of you tied up with it. Well, and the
1: other thing is, from my point of view, the if we want to call it the self, you know, the inner life, we're capable of all those emotions because it's part of how we process. And if it's if yeah. that's not if that's not happening, everything gets mired up. If you can't be sad, you can't be as joyful off. either. So um, yeah, to me, it's sort you of can't be a human being exactly. Um, But boy, I know at younger times in my life how fearful it was to allow a really, a really intense negative feeling to happen. Yeah. Um, I had to learn to do that because I don't think we are necessarily taught. Um, I'm watching my grandchildren and my, my daughter. They're having some big emotion and they're flailing about and all that. They're, still pretty young and she'll say, You're having some big emotions right now. What's what's happening with you? And I'll think, Oh, thank you. Wonderful. You know, because we're not <laughs> <That's> <laughs> we're right. not
2: really trained for it, are we? No. No. It's pretty happenstance as to whether or not we're allowed to have our own feelings or not. So yeah, that's that's very true. And again, going back to the military culture being a stoic culture, so you can see this very easily in military cultures and in veteran cultures. But our American culture uh, is, you know, a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps culture. It is sure. a rugged individualism. You know, that is our heritage as well, not just in the military. So, in fact, that's why these, what we call soul injuries, though so we've learned them, from veterans because they're so apparent, especially at end of life. Um, It's absolutely true for all of us as well.
1: Absolutely. I I thought it would also just be good for the listeners for us to differentiate. You make some differentiation between soul injury, uh, which we've been talking about and defining, and post-traumatic stress and moral injury. Two other ways, you know, the military has been doing Some amount of work with trying to address, you know, not completely, but starting to try to address post-traumatic stress um, because it's so common in the military, in the military experience. Um, But I wondered if you could uh, just differentiate between that and soul injury and moral injury and soul injury because they intersect for sure, but I think they're
2: different. They are very different, actually. Uh, at least PTSD and soul injury are very different. So, so PTSD and which is post-traumatic stress disorder. So again, trauma being the operative word. So that impacts the brain. The research that we now have with the modern imaging studies and the gene and DNA research that we know and how that turns nerve circuits on and turns. Nerve circuits off uh, in the brain when trauma occurs. We now know very clearly how trauma literally changes the brain, changes Uh. the nerve circuits of the brain. So PTSD impacts the brain. Soul injury, on the other hand, impacts our state of being, our sense of personhood, our Mm. identity. So those are two very different things. Now, are they related? They can be. And here's how. When, you, when you're traumatized, when you're vulnerable, after the trauma is over, you will draw, we all will draw conclusions about that trauma. If the conclusion we draw is, oh, there's something wrong with me, or that wouldn't have happened. Or I must be such a bad person. Or, you know, now I'm ugly. Now I'm defaced. Whatever it might. Now I, you know, now everyone knows I'm not like everybody else, and so I'm different. So you know, I'm abnormal and what whatever it might be. If that's if that's the case, then a person might develop then a soul injury on top of the the PTSD. Mm, so certain mm. people who've been traumatized. are are quite vulnerable for also acquiring a soul injury, depending on what they make of that trauma. Uh, On the other hand, they may not... For example, the president of our Opus Peace Board of Directors is a Vietnam veteran. She has PTSD. But she will say that she, even with her PTSD, that gives her problems sometimes she did not have a soul injury. And she says it's because she grew up in such a loving family. And she says she was given such a strong sense of herself that not even Vietnam could squeeze her out of her.
1: Ah. You know, I was thinking about all the times I've seen what you're describing as soul injury uh, coexisting with um, post-traumatic stress often when the trauma occurred when people were very young yeah um, exactly because exactly. because at that point it's so natural to think it's about you that's a natural childhood response and and Don't so I can see how a, the two could kind yep. of co co-develop absolutely. there in that circumstance uh and maybe absolutely. people with kind of a weak sense of self might be more um
2: vulnerable as well vulnerable. would you say absolutely Absolutely, Yes, absolutely. So now you bring up moral injury. So moral injury has been around for a couple of decades. Jonathan Shea, I think, was the first one that initially identified it, and, and thank goodness he did. He was seeing the very things that you can appreciate that those of us in VA hospice were seeing on, on nearly a, a daily basis, certainly a weekly basis with these veterans. And he termed it moral injury. And the VA and the Department of Defense do use that term. And they define it as a violation of deepest held beliefs. And certainly that's what I saw over and over again as a veteran, especially, say, a combat veteran who had killed other people. Now they're dying decades later. And the story, often that was Surface was this intense shame, this intense worry about what was going to happen in the, you know, afterlife, however you want to, again, conceptualize that, that their worry as they're getting ready to meet their maker, so to speak, very soon, was that they had killed people. So that is a very classic moral injury. And yes. so, you know, that was... a we commonly see that in doing hospice care with with veterans is that moral injury. The only which, reason which real- uh,
1: we're gonna we're gonna have to stop soon, but I wanna come back to this because I think it's important. But I can imagine that you could um, that you could have a soul injury without a moral injury. Let's just say well, that, you were around when people died, but you never personally, you were a medic or something. Um, you know, you'd still have well, all the more, grief and loss and guilt, but you you didn't actually break your moral code necessarily. True. So I can see how they're sort true. of separate in that way. Uh, have well, I understood I the concept? Children.
2: Well, our, think about the children that we just talked about. So a small child doesn't yet have a, have a set of morals. They don't yet have deep convictions about anything. But if they've, for example, been molested, I guarantee you they'll have a soul injury that will corrupt the rest of their life if they don't address it. So that we see moral injury as a subset of the larger injury that we call soul injury. Moral injury is very distinct, Distinct, and yes. very well-defined, but it's a little bit limiting when you think of, of other ways that people can become separated from their own sense of self. Gotcha. So, we'll, we'll talk more about
1: that when we get back in a few minutes, but thanks for defining it for all of us. Sure. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to... Uh, connect with me please do Uh, there's also a link to my recently published novel and to find Deborah and her work go to opuspeace.org be back soon
0: become our friend on Facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice America
1: ready to transform your health and your world Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel.
3: Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Deborah Grassman. Uh, she's written a few books, Peace at Last and The Hero Within, and is one of the founders of Opus Peace. And before the break, you were um, we were kind of parsing out the different ways that. Um, I guess we could call it broadly trauma um, can show itself in people. Uh, soul injury obviously is the main thing we're talking about today, but also post-traumatic stress and effect on the brain, and moral injury, which would be when you when you've done something that breaks your moral code, um, which may or may not be be part of the other two. Um, I I think it was helpful to kind of see those those three possibilities and see how they might intersect. But I've noticed with clients um, that when they've especially been traumatized as children, I'm thinking of one person in particular right at the moment, um, he didn't break his moral code whatsoever, but he's always imagining that he did. And it was because he was exposed to someone breaking theirs all the time. And he's kind of incorporated that into a fear that he's um, acting sinful almost. Uh, is that something that you've, you've seen with, with um, the populations that you work with?
2: Uh, sometimes, though, sort of what you're describing to me also is what I might call irrational guilt, where someone's yeah. feeling guilty about something that they had no control over. So right. Right, if you have no control over something, then it's irrational, in a sense, to feel guilty about it. So whenever I see irrational guilt, the first thing I think of is that that is a numbing mechanism for not feeling the helplessness that they experienced at oh, that time. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that completely. So, And also a fear of being like the person that hurt you, just a basic fear, which is an injury, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The other thing I didn't want to go away without uh, focusing on a bit in this last third is the many, many ways that you've come to identify soul injury can happen for people. I'd just like to read the list because almost everyone I know could – uh, could fit on this list in one way or another at a greater or lesser extremity victims of sexual assault crime, accidents, national disaster, natural disasters that's big in California right now with the terrible oh, yeah, fires right now? Yeah. So bullying ab- bullying, abuse, neglect especially if it occurred in childhood so that's kind of what we've been talking about just now um, people who, who've experienced heartache Loss of personal health or a loved one's health, death of a loved one, divorce or betrayal by a significant other. All things that are pretty pretty much to be expected if you live a, a good, healthy life, right? A long enough life. Uh, you will have it's some true. of those. Um, <laughs>
2: You're minorities. Loss is more than likely going to be a part of it. <laughs>
1: This one seems so important to me. Minorities and marginalized members of a society, culture, or, or group. As a member of of a marginalized group, uh, LGBTQ people, the mental health effects and soul injury effects of living in a traumatizing world are very evident to me and have real implications all over the place. Um, well,
2: I'm. Yeah, Go I was ahead. going to say it's just ripe for any marginalized group, whether it's based on gender, race, you know, uh, sexual race, whatever it might be. Anything that's outside the quote-unquote norm makes, I think, that population vulnerable, unless something special was going on to really work to prevent it. Because think about the name-calling, the labels, the wondering... You know, we wonder ourselves, well, why aren't I like everybody? What is what is wrong? with mean, What is wrong? Yes. Formal, geez, but there's a part
1: of it. Sure, but there's also an so, irony there because um, having to come ter- to terms with having a different identity is one of the things that strengthen my identity as well, if I speak personally. Uh, I no, had to really can, sort uh, out who I was, you know. Um, but I'm just saying exactly. that sometimes it can go the other the other way. So that stood out to me.
2: Um, well, I think what it can be, too, is that the soul, in while you're questioning, while you're wondering, wh- while you are doubting whether or not, you know, who you really are, so to speak. And that's true for most of us, even if somebody's in the mainstream, so to speak. There's a woman, that, as you're telling me this, on our on our second film that we produced with Hospice Foundation of America, uh, that film's called Liberating Unborn Loss. So there's a woman, uh, a lesbian woman, and she talks in the beginning about the soul injury that she has, that she had. She had been married, had children, and what have you. And I mean, she literally cried as she talked about the confusion, the loss of identity, and all that. But at the end, she said that soul injury was the greatest gift. I've ever received because it caused me to search until I found myself. And she said, and I'm so thrilled to be me. So um, it's really kind of incorporated exactly what you just said, that the soul injury while you're in the, in the throes of it doesn't feel good. And you don't know who you're separated, but when it acts as a force, to seek union with yourself, to seek wholeness, to be restored to wholeness, to who you were meant to be, uh, you know, that, that's the gift. And I think that's the driving force. We are all made to want to be who we really are. And uh, what yes. appears the, the barrier is what drives us to be, you know, to work through the miserableness. To have the courage, I mean, it's not, I mean, I don't know your story, Cheryl, but I guarantee you, it took some courage for you to come to the conclusions that you came to, to come but it, to who you really were.
1: Sure, but it it is also a decision. I like the post-traumatic growth people who say that it's not the mm-hmm. thing that happened, it's the fact that you struggled with it and and found a way to meaning. Yes. Uh, and I really yeah. agree with that <laughs> I know many people who didn't and and have been consumed and and eaten up you know by that dissonance mm. between them and the culture yeah. um, but it I is possible but but you know it, i I feel lucky I did I did have encouragement to find my way through it and I think that's that that's the witness you talk about uh, I just want to you know include the rest so that people uh, can identify themselves in it uh, employees sure. who have suffered unfair administrative actions that's so common i i deal with that in my practice all the time aging populations, which I'm beginning to experience that. I'm 65. <laughs> <laughs> um, veterans, well, families of veterans. Start become, we start becoming invisible, don't invisible, we? Invisible. Absolutely. <laughs> and 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 this last one really stood out. Uh personal and professional caregivers who experience mm. burnout and compassion fatigue. And that may does. I can see how that makes you more vulnerable. So I just wanted people to hear that whole list because you're in there somewhere, right? So we <laughs> all have we all have that possibility of getting injured in the process of dealing with what's difficult in life. If we're not able to just feel our way through it and let grief grief do what it does, you know, and uh, and let forgiveness do what it does. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we just have a few more minutes left and um, I'm curious about something it's kind of an odd place to end maybe but I feel it might be important (laughs) something brought you to hospice work in the first place Yes, and I was very curious about that because obviously it had such a profound impact on your life but I I don't think it takes necessarily some extraordinary person to, to do the work of hospice, except in certain little ways, but it takes something a little different to be drawn to it, and I wondered what that Mm. was
2: for you. Oh, that's funny that you ask, because I'm remembering, as you do, why it was. Well, when I became a nurse, I definitely did not set out to be a hospice nurse, Um. And I worked on a, actually, I worked on a rehabilitation floor, so certainly not something associated with hospice. Mm -hmm. But one day, I had a stroke patient who was on the rehab floor, but he stroked again and was dying. And I'd only been a nurse maybe about a year at this point in time. And I remember his wife, I called his wife. We were trying to decide whether to move him to ICU or what have you, and Ultimate, and she came in, she's making the decision, and I remember just watching her come to grips. And I could tell she had already anticipated this could happen uh, anyway. So she, I could hear her and, and feel what she was going through. And it's so inspiring to me, the courage this woman had. This was the first death I had ever actually seen uh, So a human, left, a, a human in death inspired
1: you towards it. Uh, You know, a human experience.
2: It's it's true. Um, And but what happened after she left the unit, I was just kind of sitting there reflecting on this woman and her courage. And and I remembered something I had read in a book about five or six years before, before I'd even become a nurse. And I was just in my mid-20s at that time. And I had read this one sentence, and it had leapt off the page, and it had said... You are as dead now as you are ever going to be, and I just remember thinking, "Oh my God!" And here I was, like twenty-five years old, you know, just starting my life, just had had a baby,
1: and Deborah. It it, it turns out. It it turns out that that is a wonderful way to to end for today. You are as dead as okay. you are ever going to be. I really right appreciate now, you're in your I really appreciate that. Today. <laughs> still true. It's it's still true. It's still <laughs> I've really true. enjoyed our conversation. I want to thank you so much for being with me. Early. It's been a
2: delight. <laughs> Thank you for doing the work that you're doing, Cheryl. It really the same, helps the our, same whole society, for you. our whole world. Keep letting me <laughs> you know what you're Take up there. to.
1: <laughs> and to <laughs> find Deborah, uh, I want everyone to to know that they can um, you can find the Soul Injury work. Uh, there's there's some really good information about rituals that they use in this work and and a broader um, you know more details on everything. Mm-hmm. And you can find them at opuspeace.org org next week i'll have kimberly paul author and creator of death by design she has a podcast she's about to come out with a book fascinating person she's also right now traveling through the u.s in her rv with her dog to um, bring death by design all over the country this has been good grief with cheryl jones i look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation